You can join me in opening up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. This morning we're going to be considering Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 9. And then next Sunday, John Supika will be unfolding the topic of discipleship from the book of Ephesians. And then after that, we'll return to this text and focus on verse 10 in particular. So if you're using the ZF Ephesians immersion plan, you may notice that it in the plan, we had one sermon for verses 1 through 10, but I decided to pause here in, in this section um, and do a couple, couple sermons on it. So we'll, that'll give you time to catch up if you're memorizing the book um, or this section. Well, I've spent different times learning about the Great Awakenings of the 1700s. These were a series of really incredible spiritual awakenings that happened simultaneously and then over the course of time in different cities and towns um, across Europe and the colonies and New England. And these are what we call revivals, uh, but true revivals. These aren't the kinds of revivals that you can schedule and put on your church calendar. Um, True revival is something that we cannot plan, we cannot schedule. It comes from God. So a year ago or so, I read the biography of George Whitfield by Arnold Dalimore, and I haven't been the same since. It was, it's incredible. Uh, George Whitfield was one of the people that God used most to spread um, this, these awakenings. And at the heart of these awakenings was preaching, and especially the preaching of George Whitfield and a few others. He went from city to city, town to town, speaking to thousands, 10,000 at a time, often outdoors, um, either because he wasn't welcome um, in the state churches at the time or uh, because there wasn't room. So it was out in the fields. And there were two truths at the heart of George Whitfield's preaching. Justification by faith and the new birth. Justification by faith means that God declares us righteous. He justifies us by faith alone. Not because of any good works we do, but because of Jesus' work for us in dying for us and rising again. So we are accepted by God, declared righteous by faith. The other truth that he proclaimed that was a heart of his preaching was the necessity of the new birth. The new birth is often misunderstood today. It's used often to refer to kind of turning a new leaf. Uh, corporations and companies can kind of have a new birth and a new season of life. It's a, a next step and a new lease on life. It's actually, though, nothing that we can do for ourselves. In the biblical understanding of this idea, it's something that God alone can do, and it's the act when God brings us out of spiritual death into spiritual life. He gives us a new heart. He makes us spiritually alive. We call it the new birth because that's what Jesus called it. He was talking to one religious leader named Nicodemus, and he said that no one can enter the kingdom unless he's born again. So we're born the first time physically, but God has to cause us to be born a second time to spiritual life. Another word for the new birth is regeneration. I encourage you to write that word down if it's not familiar to you, regeneration. Um, The new birth is about God giving us regeneration or new life. He regenerates us. So a word to call true Christians is regenerate. Regenerate Christians are those who, according to the Bible, are actual Christians. They are those who have, as 1 John says, they have passed from spiritual death into spiritual life. They have been born again to new life. They're regenerate. They're real Christians, according to the Bible. 
So Whitfield said that as he would preach these two truths, justification by faith and the new birth to these crowds of thousands, he said that these truths made their way like lightning into the hearers' consciences by the power of the Spirit. So here's one reason why this was such a powerful message in that day, in the 1700s. Because many people had grown up thinking they understood what Christianity was all about. Uh, But they missed the heart of it. Even many who grew up in the church or even leading the church or even were pastors in churches. And so Whitfield and others preached these two truths that were accepted by faith alone because of the work of Christ and that we must be born again and that no one is a Christian without believing in Jesus and being justified by faith alone and in being, by being born again. And so as they preached these truths, people realized that they never really embraced this. Many people who thought they were Christians, even church leaders, started to realize they weren't trusting in Christ alone for their salvation and that they weren't actually born again. They realized they weren't actually true Christians according to the way the Bible talks about Christians. They didn't actually trust and know Jesus. So that was the 1700s. And we need this same message today. There's a general sense that people think they know what Christianity is all about, but they don't actually realize that this is at the heart of it. Many in our culture are actually rejecting Christianity, but they're rejecting a version of Christianity that I would reject as well. Um, It's not biblical Christianity. It's not real Christianity. The Christianity that many Americans are rejecting today, we would reject because it's not this. So many think of God as capricious or aloof, right? If we pay our taxes to him in good works, he'll accept us. But the God of the Bible, the real God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is infinitely more gracious than we expect him to be and infinitely more loving than we perhaps have experienced him to be. You know, this became clear to me too when I was, I think I've shared this before, I was teaching a course over several years in religious studies at a college in Illinois, and the, the class was filled with all sorts of people with different religious backgrounds, some Muslims, some Buddhists, some Hindus, some atheists, agnostics, and Christians, and what was so striking to me was how by and large uh, nobody, not even those who were claiming to be Christians in the class, class actually understood the heart of Christianity, the gospel. Uh, even the Christians would write in their papers and in the discussion board something like, yeah, if we believe in God, and what they meant by that is you kind of just acknowledge that he exists, believe in God in general, and um, stop sinning, God will forgive you. He'll accept you. Uh, you'll be saved. Um, in other words, do your best, and God's kind enough if you do your best to receive you. Um, So there's kind of a culture-wide misunderstanding about what Christianity actually is, much like was happening in Europe, England, Scotland, these places, the colonies in the 1700s. And so Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 9 is here to convince us of what real Christianity is, and it's to fill our hearts with joy and wonder at it. So let's read this together. And by the way, if you do not have a Bible with you, you can find Ephesians on page 977 in the Bibles that are under the chairs in front of you. So I encourage you to grab one of those Bibles because we'll be looking at this closely together. So Ephesians 2. And you were speaking to the believers in this church, and you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we'll read verse 10, though we'll come back to this in a couple weeks. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, here's what this text teaches about the heart of the gospel, the message of Christianity. We were dead in our sins. God is rich in mercy. And God said, in a sense, let's bring those two things together and see what happens. So while we were dead, God made us alive, and it's all grace. That's the message of this text. So we'll walk through each of those parts. That's the progression of thought here. We were dead, verses 1 to 3. God made us alive, verses 4 to 6, and it's all grace, verses 7 to 9. First, we were dead. This is answering the question, why do we need the new birth? Why do we need regeneration? And the answer is right here in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked or lived. So this is speaking to Christians about what was true of them before God gave them a new heart, before God gave them the new birth, before God made them alive and regenerated them, before he caused them to be born again. This is how every single human being comes into the world by default. So if you're newer to exploring Christianity, this may, this may sound strange to you. What do you mean people were dead? Strange way of speaking because we know that we weren't physically dead. So this is referring to a spiritual death. It's saying that everyone who comes into the world comes into the world spiritually dead, physically alive, spiritually dead. We don't know God. We don't want to know God. Even our ambitions and desires that we could construe as somewhat noble and kind are ultimately oriented toward ourself and away from God. Martin Luther, the reformer of the 1500s, said that, that every human heart is curved in on itself. We're curved inward, right? away from God and others, and curved toward ourselves. Then Paul gives us these three categories to help us understand what this means. He said there are three sources of influence in our lives that affect the course of our behavior. There's three influences that shape us and form us what we think and what we value and how we live. And the three here are the world and Satan and the flesh, as he calls it. So first, the world. The world refers to not just kind of people, but it's really a system of values. 
You can see the way he put it here, according to the course of this world. We lived according to the age of this world, the world, and the various cultures within it all have dominant values and attitudes and preferences and habits. We'll come back to this in a a couple of weeks, but we need to at least see here that Paul's saying that the course of this world or of this present age and these these different values, the system of values influence us. And Paul makes a sharp contrast a sharp distinction between two really categories of value systems. There are value systems of the world, which put human beings at the center, and there are value, the value, there's the value system of God, which puts Him at the center. So before someone experiences the new birth, he's saying they are caught up in the value system of the world, the value systems that do not put God at the center. So that's the first influence. Second influence is Satan. Paul says in verse 2, we lived according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he's saying that there is an invisible spiritual realm and it does have an influence in our lives and in the world. Uh, Many cultures in the world throughout history and around the globe today are sensitive to this reality. We're, We're not as sensitive to this. Um, in modern America and our culture. But even though modern Westerners typically reject the reality of Satan, many do still uh, agree that there must be some kind of spiritual realm around us. And so this shouldn't seem like such a stretch for many people to believe, because Paul's saying that this spiritual realm, he's just saying the Bible doesn't say a lot about it, but it says enough about it to let us know that this spiritual realm isn't always friendly. The Bible doesn't tell us much, but it says that there were many who were angels, created angels, but they rejected God, and they're now what we call demons, and they have a leader named Satan or the devil. And Paul is saying some are aware of this, some are not aware of this, but this spiritual realm is influencing people and cultures. Some cultures are aware of this, some cultures are not as aware of this. And the third influence is what he calls the flesh here in verse 3. You can read it with me. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, or it's the same word, the desires of the flesh, or the sinful will and mind. So the flesh doesn't refer just to our physical body. Sometimes that word does, but typically in the way Paul uses it, like here, it's referring to a mindset. It's referring to a self-centered mindset. We're curved inward and away from God. And so we have desires and we have passions that drive and control our behavior. Now, it's interesting that many of us in our culture don't really have much of a problem agreeing that this is true of us. Um, In our culture, we're aware that behaviors can feel enslaving. We're aware of addictive behaviors. We're aware of passions that control and compel our behavior. Uh, But while we have no problem embracing this influence, we have a hard time believing the previous one of Satan as an influence. But it's it's interesting that in the first culture, first century culture that Paul's writing to in Ephesus, uh, it was actually the opposite problem. The people in Ephesus didn't have a problem, by and large, believing in spiritual beings. I mean, that city, a lot of the Christians there came out of practicing magic, and they were aware of um, they called them other gods. Later they learned that these many times are demonic forces. So they didn't have any problem believing that. What they would have had a harder time believing is this idea of flesh, this idea that we could be enslaved to our desires. So my point in noting that is just to help us realize that every culture has a hard time embracing one or two of these, 
and an easier time embracing others. And so that should give us a posture of humility, or it should at least open us up to the ways that we might be predisposed to only embrace one or another of these. And you may wonder, why would God create the world like this? Why would this be how reality is for people? And the answer is that God didn't create humanity like this in the beginning. We always have to recognize the the larger storyline of the Bible to make sense of wherever we are in the storyline of the Bible. So this reality of being spiritually dead flows from what happened at the beginning of the story, the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of human history. God created humanity good. After he made humanity in the world, he said it was all very good. And God told our first parents, Adam and Eve, that if they rejected his command, they would die. And that's exactly what happened. They did reject God. And they became curved inward. They they died spiritually, in, immediately, in a sense, and then they eventually died physically, and then we all now are products of that. We're now born with hearts that are oriented away from God. We're born dead in our sins, and then we, that leads to a physical death as well. And so now everyone's born with a heart that's spiritually dead. And so what's the result of this? Well, the end of verse 3 says that we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So this is saying that our condition by nature, right, we, we come out of the womb like this, and then it shows up in life in the way that we live. So by nature and by practice, we're children of wrath. We often have trouble understanding how this can be true of a God who's good. But think about this with me. We really all do want God to be a God of wrath. Um, We look at the world, and if we pay close enough attention to what it's really like, we sense the appropriateness of righteous anger. I'm reading a book on World War II right now, and it's just, there are no words to describe the horrors of what happened to thousands upon thousands and hundreds of thousands of people at the hands of thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people. And it wasn't just, you know, they, people needed education, people needed better parenting, people just needed a hug early. I mean, this is deep in the human heart. And we see the global sex trade, we see the slave trade, we see murders of innocent people, and we want justice. And so, here's the question, what if God was indifferent to it all? What if we were down here rightfully angered about some of these things, and God couldn't relate with that at all because He was indifferent? In the end, we really do want God to bring justice. And it's interesting, we we actually do see this in our culture today. Many people who don't like the idea of God being a God who can have anger, at the same time insist that if we're sincere about social injustices today, we better be angered about it. So one reason we feel this way, I think, is something right, that we recognize that love and wrath belong together. Righteous anger is a result of deep love. The more someone loves a victim and the more unjust the crime the more wrath is kindled, and rightly so. Someone, if someone doesn't get angry, then 
we would conclude it's because they're indifferent or they do not think it's an injustice, right? You see, you following the, the thought here? So this shows that when we look at some terrible injustice or oppressions today, we all want justice and we see that there's a place for righteous anger. And so then the issue that confronts us with verse 3 here is this, are we okay with God having righteous anger and what if you and I are actually part of the problem of the world? Are we okay with God being angry with us? What if his anger is rightly directed at us? What if we're not as good deep down as we might think we are? So here's why Paul's writing this. He's writing this to help us be honest with ourselves. That we would recognize that we're part of the problem. But here's the great news about this. The more that we understand this problem, the more we can be thrilled at the solution. This is really why Paul's writing this. He's not writing to be a downer. His, his tone here is actually continually buoyant in these opening chapters because the whole point is he's writing to believers to remind them of who they were. And so uh, we don't drill down into the depth of the problem here, and we're really just, I mean, this is brief as it is. We're not doing this here to depress us, but ultimately to encourage us about the good news of God's grace. Because here's the truth. If we have a thin view of the problem, then we'll have a thin view of God's grace. And if we think we're not that bad, we think that God's grace isn't that great. So let's move on to the next part. First, we were dead. Second, God made us alive. Verse 4, but God. Is that underlined in your Bible? This is the cosmic interruption of grace. The story did not need to move in this direction. We could have kept reading. We were all by nature children of wrath, and so God judged all of humanity, and that was it. But God is apparently too gracious for his justice to have the only word. He upholds his justice, but it's not the only word. So who this God is makes all the difference in the world. And who is this God then who interrupts the story like this? We'll keep reading. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. So these are the deep motives in the heart of God that explain why he does what he does. God saved us because of who he is. He saved us because it's his nature to be kind. We were by nature children of wrath. He is by nature rich in mercy. And notice his mercy is not a side note. He is rich in mercy. He, Paul doesn't say, you deserved wrath, but thankfully God has some mercy. No, he's rich in mercy. One of my favorite authors, Thomas Goodwin from the 1600s, noticed this. He said, the Bible never says God is rich in wrath. He's rich in mercy. We provoke him to wrath, but he's rich in mercy. As one pastor has said, at the heart of the universe is a love that is too great to be limited to what we deserve. So what did God do for us, given that this is who he is? Verse 5, he made us alive. That's new birth. That's regeneration. That's taking spiritually dead people and bringing them to life. So think about what this means. Someone who is dead cannot make themselves alive. A dead person cannot decide to live. 
A dead person cannot decide to start breathing. A dead person can't even ask for help. They are not, as Miracle Max put it in The Princess Bride, mostly dead. They are all dead. And that was us, right? No spiritual pulse, no responsiveness to God. Romans 3 says, no one seeks God. And God then has to do this. So we're really like Jesus' friend Lazarus. In the Gospel of John in chapter 11, Lazarus is dead and he's in the tomb. And Jesus walks up and he doesn't ask Lazarus if he'd like him to come back to life. He doesn't ask permission. He just says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus starts breathing. And he comes out. Lazarus doesn't make the first move. Jesus speaks. So if you're a Christian, that happened to you already. That's what God did for you. And if you're not yet trusting in Christ, that can happen to you. Now, some of you who've had this happen don't know exactly when it happened. You cannot name the day or the hour or the minute, but some of you can. Some of you can name the day and the hour that God gave you a new heart and you realized at that very instant that Jesus did die for you and he rose again from the dead and he is the living king and you followed him. Others of you may not know when this happened. For some of us, the process of coming to Jesus seemed quite slow and progressive. Maybe it happened over a long course of time. Maybe you were too young to remember when this happened or you can't even remember a time not believing. The point is, it is not that we know exactly when it happened. The point is that there is a point, right? So the point isn't that we can identify the point. The point is that there is a point. For me, it happened sometime when I was 11 years old. I have no idea what the moment was that I went from death to life. But I, it happened sometime in that year because I was going into that year spiritually dead without any kind of pulse or responsiveness toward God. And I left that year new, believing the gospel having new desires within me, and I haven't been the same ever since. And so there was a moment, even if we can't always discern what that moment is, that's the doctrine of the new birth of regeneration. God has to do it, and he does it. Now, what else happens when we're made alive? Well, we're not only made alive, we're raised up and seated with Christ in heaven. Look at verse 6. What an amazing thing. We were made alive, and he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, we're already taking uh, two weeks on this section. I'm tempted to take three because there's so much here to unpack, but we, we won't. But here, here's the short of it. What does this mean? How is it true that we're seated with Christ Jesus? Well, think about Jesus first. At the very end of chapter 1, Paul said that Jesus was made alive and raised from the dead, and that he was seated in the heavenly places. And what that meant wasn't that he found a chair, but was that he, it meant he was enthroned. He took his rightful place of rule over all things, and Paul lists, over all powers and authorities and rulers, whether in this age or the age to come, whether physical or spiritually perceived, Jesus is enthroned, he's seated. And now notice that what Paul's doing is he's saying that the power that raised Jesus from the dead and enthroned him is also at work in you to do the same things as you're united to Jesus. So he says in verse 5 and 6, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him 
in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that means right now, you know, we're not physically resurrected yet. That's coming in the future. But already ahead of that great last day, in the middle of history, God has brought the resurrection power into life, and He's raising people spiritually from the dead. And we're raised with Jesus. And not only raised with Jesus, we're seated with Him, which means that we are we are caught up with Jesus and joining Jesus in His position of authority over all things. We are reigning with Christ, as other places in the Bible speak of this. We're enthroned with Jesus. When we trust Him, we're united to Him by faith. Our identity gets so wrapped up in His that we're joining with Him in His status as King. He's the ultimate King, but He allows us to reign with Him. That would have been very encouraging, especially to these Christians in Ephesus who had came out of these kind of dark magic practices, who lived in fear of these spiritual powers, who lived under the shadow of Caesar as a Lord, and then they hear that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, and then they learn that Jesus is in charge, not these other spiritual forces. They don't need to be afraid. They have spiritual authority in Christ over the powers of darkness, and that's an encouragement to all of us then as well. So, this is really the purpose of humanity from the beginning. Adam was created to have dominion over the world, and we've lost that dominion through our own sin. We fail to rule the world and reflect God's goodness, but Jesus has come to do it right, and He's the true King. He did what we've all failed to do, and now that He's raised from the dead, He's bringing us along with Him, restoring us to our place as rulers of the world with Him. What a privilege final phrase. We were dead, God made us alive, and third, it's all grace. It's all grace in three ways. It's grace all the way back, all the way down, and all the way forward. So first, it's grace all the way back, all the way back into the heart of God from eternity past. Our salvation is rooted in the heart of God, and it's in grace. Paul didn't say, merely, God made us alive. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. So God's heart is overflowing with love. It's rich in mercy, and He enjoys showing mercy. God is not reluctant to save us. He enjoys this. He is more eager to show you mercy than you are to receive it and He will be forever. This is why in verse 5, Paul interjects into the middle of his thought, by grace you've been saved. And then he repeats it again in verse 8, for by grace you've been saved. It's grace all the way down to the bottom. Even our part in this, God does involve us, right? He raises us from the dead, and He involves us in this process. So our part is trusting. It's faith. We're saved by grace through faith, trusting in Jesus and His grace. But even our part is a gift of His grace. Look at verse 8 carefully. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So here's the question. What's the this? This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. What does that refer to? Well, some have thought that it refers back to the word salvation. So, salvation is a gift 
that we receive through faith. Others have thought it refers back to faith. Our faith is the gift. They're both right. Almost all recent commentators agree that if you just look at the grammar of Paul writing this when he wrote it in Greek, he's referring to the whole process as a gift. Salvation by grace through faith. The whole thing, not just one part, but all of it, is a gift. It's not your own doing, which means that even our faith is part of that gift, which is why Paul says elsewhere, like in Philippians 1.29, he says, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ to believe. So third, it's grace. What would I say? It's grace all the way down, all the way back, all the way forward. It's grace all the way forward. Verse 7, why did God save us like this? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's just read that again. So this is why God saves us. This is actually the, the point of the text so far. This is the ultimate purpose. So that in the coming ages, it's interesting, Paul doesn't say here the coming age, which is what he usually does. Most typically, the coming age, he says ages, I think, because it's, he's trying to have this forward-looking thrust, like waves, age upon age upon age, never-ending, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God's purpose in saving you right now, and his purpose, in, his purpose will continue to be true for you 10 years from now and a bazillion years into the future, age upon age, it's so that we'll experience his grace and see his grace and praise him for his grace. God saved us to show us forever just how much he loves us. God's purpose in saving you is to show you forever, age upon age, just how kind he is toward you. Our future will be an ever-increasing experience of grace. It will be an ever-increasing reception of His grace. It will be an ever-increasing experience of joy in His grace. And nothing shows God's grace like these two truths, the truths that George Whitfield preached. Justification by faith alone, declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone, and the new birth, that while we were dead, God made us alive through faith. So how do we respond to this? Well, many of you uh, already believe this. To some degree or another, we do. So what do you do with this? What do you do when you learn things again that you already learned before? Well, you let it sink down deeper. The Apostle Peter wrote to a church and said, I'm writing these things to you to stir you up by way of reminder. Uh, growth in the Christian life is not just about learning new things. It's about learning the things, relearning the things we already knew so that they might be pressed into our heart more deeply, that it might kindle more praise. We, we are, most of us in this room already know enough to just thrill our hearts with praise moment by moment. And what we need is the experience of being re-encouraged week after week, day after day, moment by moment through God's Word, through preaching, through reading, through conversations with one another. So this text exists to encourage Christians that's why Paul is writing this. He's writing to a church to encourage Christians by telling them what happened to them, 
by reminding them about what happened to them. So if you've trusted Christ, this is what happened to you. You were dead. There's, there's no good reason outside of God's heart for why you should have been made alive. And you didn't ask him to do it. He did it by grace. So let's not get bored with this. Let's live with humility and joy and confidence in God. And so if you've been a Christian for one year or 30 years or 60 years, let's never get bored by this. And if you've just become a Christian, this is what happened to you. You are trusting Christ because God, out of his heart of love and the riches of his kindness, made you alive. He powerfully worked in your heart. This was my, the text I read and shared about when I shared my testimony when I was baptized. So I was trying to think, what happened to me? Ephesians tells me what happened to me. I was dead. Shared a bit about what that looked like. I was made alive. Heard the gospel, believed it. I was minding my own business. God made me alive. And now I'm living a life of good works. Not perfectly, certainly not perfectly, but the Lord's changed me. And what if you don't believe that this has happened to you? Well, know that it's not up to you to make this happen. And know that that is actually good news. Because it means that no matter how distant you've been from God, you can get in on this. He does this to the best and the worst of us to make it clear that it's all his grace. And how does he do it? He does it by involving us as he brings the gospel, this good news of Christ's death and resurrection for our sins. As we hear it, then he makes us alive, bringing us to faith so we trust him and we have new life. So as we hear this, he calls us to trust him and then he does the work of bringing this about in our own hearts. And so we rely completely on him and we say, thank you. So let's uh, pray now and then we'll sing uh, in response to this before we go. Our Father, we thank you that we were dead and you made us alive. We thank you that if you did not, and you did not have to, if you did not, we would not be here this morning. We'd have no reason to be here this morning. And we don't know where we'd be or what we'd be doing. And so we're thankful for your mercy. And we thank you that you give us a window into your heart and your purposes forever to show us the riches of your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And so we pray that you would, by your Spirit's power, stir our hearts afresh and continually to live in awe and wonder about your power in our lives. So we thank you for the new birth and we thank you for receiving us through Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things, confident that you hear us by grace through faith in him. Amen.